welcome to An Amazingly Ordinary Life, the podcast that takes a behind-the-scenes look at the world of special needs. I'm Sherry Tharp, an autism mom and your host. Join me each week as we share our lives, build community, and redefine normal. This is An Amazingly Ordinary Life, episode number four. Today, I'll be talking with Amy Davidson. She's going to talk about her experience with her daughter's incredibly rare diagnosis of Lay syndrome a mitochondrial disease that has robbed her daughter of language, mobility, fine motor skills, and gross motor skills. Amy, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's so nice to get to see you again. Thank you. A lot of people wouldn't know this, but you and I go way back to sixth grade. Yeah. Yeah, that's a long time. And so to have us both kind of here in that same special needs community is kind of just continues on that friendship that we had then. And it's just interesting to me as adults that we have a lot of the same similarities that we're going through this again with our kids and having to deal with that. Okay. So why don't you start with giving us just kind of an overview of you and your family and kind of the dynamic of that? So I have two kids. Austin is the oldest. He's now 20, almost 21. And then Lily is the youngest and she's 17, almost 18. I am a safety manager for a private company. I used to work for the state for, oh gosh, over 15 years. I was married for about 14, 15 years. I stay at home mom with Austin for five years and then with Lily for a year. And then I went back to work for the state. And then up until just a year and a half ago, I left the state and have been working privately now. So I have been working full-time, mostly through this whole childhood rearing time. Austin was born in 99. Lily is my special needs kiddo, but Austin has had his own needs as well. Almost in a way, he's needed more. (laughs) Lily is more physically disabled. Austin's more emotionally and behaviorally. So that took a lot more of my energy. (laughs) Yeah. And and yeah, you understand that. And then sometimes Lily, so... I mean, I would say he's a normally developed 21-year-old now. Did not think he would ever graduate from high school, and he did. He actually has gone to college, vocational college, Mm -hmm. which is what's for him. He's at the end of that, but just got his first job. Yay! (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, so he's working full-time. It's a hard job. I mean, he's doing the grunt work, and he's doing it, and he's still working, and that's awesome. So from a kiddo who took everything from me, has succeeded and, and that's, it's awesome. What is the underlying issue behind his mental and emotional issues? So he started out from, I'd say 18 months, nonstop kid. So of course he was diagnosed with the ADHD. They actually, from his first probably six years of life, gave him OCD, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, pervasive developmental disorder, took both of those away. Obedient, what is that? Oh, you probably know the De- terminology. Defiant, it's like <laughs> oppositional, 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 defiant oppositional defiance, yes. <laughs> ODD, oppositional defiance yes, yes. disorder. <laughs> yeah, they gave him that, took that away. They finally just threw him in the category of being on the spectrum. There really wasn't any formal. Up until eight years ago, through Lily's testing, we had done some genetic testing and they determined Austin didn't have what Lily had. But he has something totally different. Of course. <laughs> and that's where they found this. Yeah. And they found a partial chromosome deletion. It's so small, but it actually affects behavior and memory issues, which kind of explains everything that happened his first few years of life. Yeah. So <laughs> how did he do in school? 
Well, he was kicked out of kindergarten. He was kicked out of like three daycare centers, kicked out of pretty much every year of school. His kindergarten year, he just hung out with a janitor. (laughs) (laughs) That was his kindergarten. Finally, they put him in a Piaf School District has uh, programs for various types of special needs. And one of the programs is a behavioral needs program. It's more geared toward oppositional defiant disorder children. He didn't really fit in there, but he didn't fit anywhere else. So they put him in this program and it got him started with an IEP and everything. So at least, you know, they weren't able to kick him out of school or, you know, he could have a special school bus. (laughs) He had assistance that way, paraeducators that could help him. So he had all of that up through high school and then pretty much in mainstream, but still had an IEP. Mm -hmm. In his high school years, unfortunately, he lived with his dad, but he still had the IEP. So he still had some guidance there. And that's how he was able to graduate. Honestly, he would not have graduated without an IEP. And you know as well. (laughs) Yeah. That's when you struggle with, do you give your kid this label? Or do you not? You don't want them going through life with people, you know, red flags going, oh, well, this is that kid. He's got an IP. He's got a label or whatever. But then if you don't have it, they're not being served the way they should. They're not going to be able to approach your education in a way that's going to benefit them. Yep. You know, you have yeah. to weigh the good with the bad. He moved back home with me the senior or junior year. I remember him saying, I don't need an IEP. I don't need one. And I, I admit, I told him, I said, you know, you may not need it, but, you know, if you do need it, it's there and it's right. going to, you know, help you graduate. <laughs> so yeah, otherwise he honestly wouldn't have graduated. <laughs> it's the same way with my son. If he didn't have that IEP to where they were making special accommodations and really doing whatever it took to get him moving forward, I don't know that he would have graduated either. Yeah. It's great. I mean, obviously they're not up to the, you know, 4.0 student that, you know, but. Right. <laughs> you just want them to finish. <laughs> yeah. And at least now it helps them on their resume to be able to get the job or the college or whatever else. So. And I think it gives them that sense of accomplishment too, that, I mean, school is hard anyway. And then to have yeah. all these issues that you're dealing with on top of it, but to be able to get through and finish and actually graduate, that's something yeah. that they can feel really good about. And that's a huge accomplishment that they can take with them especially when you have kids that, you know, didn't graduate that they know, and it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, feel even better. <laughs> exactly. Definitely. So how old was Austin when you had Lily? Austin was three. So right in the middle of all the fun stuff. Yep. Yeah. Terrible three. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but then continue on into the terrible fours and the terrible fives. Yep. <laughs> and so I had two kids in diapers because he was like five years old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So was Logan. He was five. Yeah, he just, I did the same thing. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you finally just give up trying, and it just yep, they'll just do ready. it when they're ready. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was right there with you. I had two in diapers as well. So, <laughs> okay, so Austin was three when you had Lily. How was your pregnancy with her? Perfect. I okay. loved being pregnant. I wanted more kids. <laughs> Not, nah, I know I don't want more kids. I wanted more pregnancies. <laughs> yeah. So, when did you know something was going on with her that something might be different? She was totally, absolutely normal baby. And it was the only difference was she had a lot of ear infections. So we were always going back to the doctor for ear infections. And finally about 10, 11 months, I was getting frustrated because he refused to put tubes in her ears and she would like lean to one side and still nothing odd. So at a year old, a little bit slow, she was sitting, but because of her ear infections, she was always kind of leaning, didn't have the balance. So I thought, as much. And she was starting to pull up, say some words. And we had gotten all of her vaccines at a year old and they get a whole bunch all at once. They give them all the shots. 
exactly 10 days later, she got sick. She had the flu. She was throwing up. She was vomiting. And I throw this out there too, because I threw this out there to the doctors because we were trying to find out what happened. She'd also had a bunch of bug bites because we had gone camping. So, you know, I'm throwing out West Nile virus was a big word during those times. Of course, the shot. So anyway, again, pretty normal. But then all of a sudden, like was shopping in Walmart, pushing the shopping cart with her and the little in the shopping cart. And she just could not hold herself up. Like she was totally leaned over the side of the shopping cart. It was almost like a stroke. You know, she was just Mm. one whole side of the body wasn't working. And I was holding her up, walking in Walmart. And I just started crying. I was like, it's not normal. And this is sad. So we found a neurologist here in Tacoma. You know, they sent us to him and he started doing testing. And I say it's sad because we saw him 17 years ago and we just had his last appointment here a month ago, but we will no longer have him as a doctor because he's a pediatrician. (laughs) He is the one who said she appears to have Lay's syndrome, which is a degenerative neuromuscular disease. And just from the symptoms, he thought that. Started doing tests, nothing came back positive, nothing. They did a spinal tap, muscle biopsy, of course, blood, everything. Nothing came back positive. It's a very rare disease and they didn't have testing at that time. I bring out the shots because the problem with her disease is that it can appear at any time. You're born with this disease, but it can appear at any time. It could be six months, two years, an adult. So when your immune system is low is usually then when this disease will present itself. So when you've had a whole bunch of vaccinations all at once, your immune system is low. And that's, you know, what I conclude. And then also having the flu, all of that put together, her immune system was low. And so that's when the disease presented itself. So this happened, what, 16, 17 years ago, very new, not much information about it. Of course, even the internet was new and I'm at home searching this verbiage because I left the doctor's office being told she's one to three years at onset of disease. You have one to three years of life expectancy. Wow. So I go home and I'm reading the same stuff. She's going to die in one to three years. Oh, that's devastating. Yes. So that brings me in all kinds of other, I mean, I can keep talking on (laughs) other directions. So when you get diagnosis, it's a grieving process, denial, all of that. And then if you're married, you have, you know, one spouse, they, the spouses don't go through the same process. I quickly went through the grieving process, accepted it and was just going to accept life and move on. Of course, I've had my ups and downs (laughs) about that. Right, right. So since we thought she only had one to three years, we started spending very extravagantly to give her the life she deserved in those little one year. (laughs) So any concert that came out, you know, anything wiggles, all that. (laughs) We were going out and having fun. Did the Make-A-Wish Foundation at that time. So did whatever. This was still not sure. I never knew if this is truly what she had. So every time I go back to the doctor, I ask, is there more tests? You know, maybe I have a new symptom. Maybe it's not that. Are you sure it's not West Nile? Are you sure it's not the vaccinations? Whatever. The symptoms showed Lay's disease and that's what they kept it at. Specialists, there's specialists in Oregon. So I used to have to drive to Oregon every six months to see specialists that were the special doctors for Lay's disease. It's two and a half hours. And you would have Austin also, or would he have to stay behind with family? He would usually stay home. So I was married at the beginning. It got to the point where Austin stayed with dad and I would go and deal with Lily. I was always the one that dealt with the kid stuff. Appointments, I did all of that. And as you know, like some of the people listening, stay-at-home moms have a busy job as it is. But then when I went back to work, my fault, I didn't like put parameters on that. I'm not going to be a stay-at-home mom anymore. Now I'm going to have two jobs. Right. Continue being a stay-at-home mom and doing all the duties and working. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, and then special needs. So yeah, we went to go down to Oregon. So actually it wasn't until I guess eight years ago, they came up with a new genetic test, blood test. 
and they were able to test all of us and it still did not come up as Lay's disease. They still said it was, but the test wasn't detailed enough. And that's when they had found Austin's disease. So it actually wasn't until I would say about three years ago, maybe four, probably three years ago, where a new test, a genetic test, and you guys might've heard of it. The big famous people spend ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 and have this genetic, you know, I'm talking about the genome sequencing. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's the test that can now diagnose it. So they were able to do that test on Lily, but in order to really find out what kind of Lazy syndrome it is, it's best to test mom and dad. I did the test, and of course, Lily did the test. The reason it's important is because then they find out who has which gene or, you know, like who's the person that transferred, or if it was just an anomaly. So anyway, dad didn't want to, so brother Austin stepped up, and he did. <laughs> he did the test. So that's when they finally, so we finally found the firm diagnosis three years ago that um, she does indeed have Lay syndrome, and it came up from this testing. And what's interesting, it was great that Austin did the test because I have an abnormal gene, and Austin has an abnormal gene. Lily has both of them, which cause Lay syndrome. So that tells them that dad has the same gene as Austin, and then I have a totally different one. So the only way to get this Lay syndrome is if these two abnormal genes come together and the kid takes both of them. It's just a perfect <laughs> um, storm. I'm, yeah. And I, yeah. And I'm not a biology person. I'm totally explaining it wrong, I'm sure. But the point is, it's so rare. So Austin is a carrier and he knows it. And so if he actually has a baby with somebody that has my gene, which would be like one in like a trillion, it's important for him to know that. And that's why I really wanted him to be part of the testing so that he knows. And you probably, and a lot of people listening will understand this is, no, it's not a good diagnosis, but I was glad to finally have a diagnosis for her. Yes. Having <laughs> um, answers is yes. just so powerful. Yes. And yes, it just gives you that peace of mind that you're not just making everything up. Yes. There is something really going on and you can name it. That just gives you that power. That yes. just gives you a little bit of control. Yeah. And now I know, I mean, I've known the end result, but I guess I don't want to say it. I'm glad I don't have like a hope of something else out there, but it's like now, at least I know now it's right. It's just, I have an answer. I mean, after 16 years of waiting for an answer, it was awesome. I mean, not awesome because the diagnosis sucks, but yeah. <laughs> nothing's changed in the last 16 years. So about the one to three year time period, if you haven't already done the math in your head, she was diagnosed at one, gave her one to two year life expectancy, and she's now almost 18. So Things have progressed in the medical field about it and about the knowledge about it. You know, she's taken care of and has all the needs that she needs. So that's helped her life expectancy, obviously, be longer. That's amazing. So, that's just awesome that that has changed. How stressful was it those first couple of years being told, you know, she's not going to live past three or four. How stressful was that to get to that seeming deadline? I mean, it was really stressful in the beginning because, you know, I mean, again, that grieving process and going through it and, and I still go through it on times, but at that time it's so fresh, you know, and it, you're never going to have the ballerina and the wedding dress, the grandchildren, none of that. So the grieving on that part, you know, was obviously really in depth. And then it was just an unknown. It was a waiting game. It's like, what's going to happen next? Because there's going to be a regression and what's going to happen. She had trouble eating from about a year old. She had trouble swallowing and choking. And so at three years old is when it came to the point where we decided to do the feeding tube. And it's honestly the best thing to ever decide to do. But anyway, that one to three year waiting is just what's going to happen next. Here I thought worst case scenario, her heart's going to go or her lungs. And the longer you wait, the more years go by. 
nothing changes, you know, you just go on with life. Putting one foot in front of the other and moving on. I mean, there are many children who do have that steep regression, you know, who will start having, you know, breathing issues and stuff. And we thankfully have been so stable for so many years that it's just our normal life. And so after a few years, you know, by the time she turned to three and then four and then by five, it was like, whatever, you know, no, she's not going to, she's not going to die anytime soon. I'm not going to stress about it anymore. <laughs> At some point you have to just pick up and move on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why worry about it? And by that time, you know, you start reading more on the internet and cause that's where we get all our information, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> it's all correct. It's not quite as bad. It just, when you're new to this world, you really zone on that one little sentence. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to notice the worst case scenario. Exactly. Yep. You said she had this regression at three. She had to get a feeding tube. Walk us through kind of what your life with her was like at that point. So from one year old on my daily life would be literally sit her down for breakfast on her high chair and it would take her so long to get enough food in that's now lunchtime. And then lunchtime, it would take so long to get enough food in. It's now dinner time. It was an all day trying to get enough food in there because she either couldn't feed it or she'd eat so slow or come out of her mouth. Then she couldn't drink fluids, so we'd have to thicken it. And she always had to have a sippy cup. It takes a lot of effort and takes longer to drink a cup of thick water. <laughs> it's like a milkshake compared to water. It takes a long time. It was very time consuming to try to feed her. And so I knew a feeding tube was coming. And so it was kind of funny because when the doctor said, you know, I think the best thing is to put a feeding tube on, I was like, okay, when? <laughs> when he looked at me, his mouth all dropped. Like I was expecting to freak out. <laughs> I was like, let's do it. I mean, it's a big thing. Right. And actually that was probably the biggest and most eventful part of this whole process because a lot of things happened. The other thing with this disease is it's very dangerous to go on under any kind of station or surgery. So she regressed in the hospital. We were actually in the hospital for what would have been a couple days to five weeks. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And she started having seizures, her first ones. She had never had those before. And then just a lot of anxiety, neurological type events. So that was a regression in her disease again. Then, so at three years, that's really when like probably the deepest, she kind of went up and down. She would go down to a newborn. I guess I didn't really explain that. She would go down to a newborn state, but then she would kind of gain some abilities like using her hands. So from the first three, four years of her life, she sometimes could use her hands. She could point at things, make choices, move her head a little bit, hold it up. About three, four years of age, around where the feeding tube time came, she lost pretty much all that ability. She was at one point able to make choices with her eyes, like TV. We'd hold up two DVDs and ask her which one she wants. So we try to interact with her in that regard. And she used to be able to point with her hands and then it was looking at the CDs. So is she ever verbal? No. At one year, she was saying a couple words, but gosh, it's been so long. <laughs> I think yeah. she might've said data and like, yes and no, maybe or something. I think maybe another kind of word, but no, but she would always be able to point and, and look, but right around, I'd say around three or four years old is when she really went down, regressed back to that point. I consider her now at a newborn state. Okay. She cannot make choices. Well, okay. School says she can make choices. <laughs> school has all kinds of buttons and, you know, and oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. time to... <laughs> 
I, I mean, she can, but she can't point like she used to. She can't use her eyes like she used to. And she actually can no longer see, so she can only hear. So we play music and movies, so she can hear the movies. Her only communication with school and here or anyone is really her smiling, crying, facial expressions, laughing. So that's why I say she's really a newborn baby. She communicates like a newborn. It's a lot of time it's as a guessing game. She is fussy. It's okay. Is she wet? Is she dirty? Is she, you know, it's a guessing game all over again. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like a newborn. It's, so bringing up the newborn, which is I think one of your questions, is probably thy worst. Remember when you had your newborn? I mean, did you like it? It sucked. You're up all night. You don't know what the heck they want. You're tired. You're cranky. Yeah, yeah. I remember those days. <laughs> now, if you remember those and you remember the worst part, think about doing it for 17 years. Yeah, that's my M. And that was and it was somebody who has grown into yeah. a bigger body. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can't just rock her, or, you know, rock her to sleep or, you know, take her for a car ride anymore, <laughs> put right. her on the washing machine and let it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is she able to have any kind of therapy that helps? Or, I mean, is there anything that's helps her quality of life? Any medication, therapies, any, anything like that? Again, from age one, you know, of course they did the OT and the PT speech therapy. We stopped all therapies probably about seven years ago or so, just because it wasn't helping. Now we just do checkups for her orthotics and she gets wrist splints. She's got leg splints, night splints. And then of course, you know, for her medical, you know, like wheelchair needs, she's got hoist, that kind of stuff, bath chairs. So with you having to work full time, what kind of in-home care are you having to do with her? It was really awesome because when I went back to work right about when this whole thing started, I happened to work with a coworker who had a child who passed away who had a form of muscular dystrophy, I think. He knew about the system. He knew in Washington State, they have DSHS, which has a Division of Developmental Disabilities. Well, it's now called DDA. It's really hard to get into, or was at that time, but he knew somebody. So I drove way out to the peninsula, which is probably like three hours away to meet this person that works the state. He determines eligibility for services for special needs kiddos. So I went to go see him to get how to get help. And he knows of loopholes because it's really hard to get these services. And so what things to say. And one of the things he told me I have to say if I want help is I need to tell the person that I am a family in crisis and that I need help and I need services for my daughter or I'm going to have to put her in a home. And it's sad that here, you know, 16, 17 years ago, I know that sentence verbatim because I've had to say it so many times. Yeah. I want to say something else, but <laughs> we um, all know it. We all know what time, you're inserting there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's every time I have to say that, it just pisses me off because it's like, you know, and, and I have to say it because they'll say, oh, no, you just don't qualify. And it's so basically you have to threaten the state to give up your child in order for them to give you help yeah. to keep your child at home. So I was able to apply, you know, he'd give me the paperwork and how to fill it out. And so I got services. It was a perfect time because she had been in the hospital for five weeks. The hospital bill was $250,000. And if I hadn't had Medicaid, you know, that goes back three months and pays all past medical bills for the past three months, we would have been liable for the hospital bill and everything else. Her feeding tube, she gets food every month and they come and, you know, like older people will drink the um, pedia or not the mm -hmm. pedia, the, the insure. Insure. There you go. So she drank five of those a day, which is 150 a month. And then she's got a little pump that pumps it into her tube. And then, of course, all the, you know, 
tubes and all that. So once a month they charge our insurance $3,500. So if you think about how much it costs to buy PediaSure, it probably costs two, $300. A whole nother story that we all understand <laughs> the yeah. prices of pharmaceutical stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but it's crazy. So because we're able to get this waiver and this Medicaid 14 years ago, that's how we're able to get all this stuff. There's no way I would have been able to, I can't afford to pay, you know, yeah, all nobody can. medical insurance. Thankfully, we were able to get services through DDA. Like I said, it comes with Medicaid. So she's got that. Washington state provides care providers through DDA. So I have care providers come in again, every single year they come into my home, they do an evaluation and I have to give them the worst case scenario day. If I don't do that, I mean, I won't get the hours I have. And I have enough hours to cover for when I go to work. Now, I never used to. Up until two years ago, I was still paying $1,000 out of my pocket for daycare. And my plan when I went to return to work when Austin was five was, you know, we no longer have this daycare expense. We all have to determine that when we go back to work of the cost of daycare and so forth. And so that was our plan was, okay, well, we wouldn't have to pay for daycare when Lily turns five. Well, here she is at 15 and I'm still paying a thousand dollars a month. So I'm now able to not pay that as of just a year or two ago. And now I get enough care for hours to cover that. But now that puts less hours on the weekends or vacation because that's important to have rest. But I do feel lucky that I get as much as I do. That's a whole nother avenue. Even though I have services, there are some months I can't use all of my hours because maybe somebody quit working for me. And when I am looking to hire somebody, it's up to me to find somebody. And then they got to be contracted and they got to go through this process, which is really hard. So honestly, I might get one person out of 30 people I contact who's even interested. And I have to hire that one person, whether I like them or not. <laughs> That's rough. It is. Yes. We've had care providers who've stolen thousands of dollars from uh, our homes. Not to mention, how are they with Lily when I'm not around? Right. I don't even want to think about that. Yeah, you can't. So, You'll no. never leave the house if you start yeah. thinking about it. Exactly. It's like, do I want to put a camera in my home or not? So the other fortunate thing is about 10 years ago, I got my mom contracted with DDA as well through the state. Oh, good. She, at that time, there was a family clause where you didn't have to take training, but you could become a contractor. You just sign a little waiver. And I did that. And I wanted to do that because she helped me so much from a year old. She'd bring Lily to therapy appointments while I was at work and she was working. She did so much. And I wanted to do that because I am one that can't ask for help. But if I know somebody's getting paid for it. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, even yesterday I had her come over for three hours because I was working late, but she's getting paid for it. So I feel better. I mean, it's great because now she can get a little bit extra money now that she's retired, but it's her granddaughter. So she loves it. But now I also get help because I need it. And you trust um, who is caring uh, for your daughter. Even better. Yes. You've brought up some really, really good points that I'm hoping will come out as a result of this podcast is one, how difficult it is to find services and how difficult it is to get approved for those services, which is so sad. And it's just tragic that there's so many families out there that they can't make it through jumping through all the hoops. They have trouble figuring out even where to go to begin with. And then, like you said, like if you didn't know exactly what to say, you're not going to get services. And there's so many times over and over again that our states and the systems just fail our families. It should be 
simple to get the services to raise these kids, to get parents respite to where they can refresh and recharge and keep going, to get our kids medical and therapy. And that should be an easy process. That should be the easiest thing we have to deal with. And it's such a nightmare and such a circus. Yes. I mean, and like you brought up medical. Two years ago, I requested a hospital bed and I fought with them. And once a week I would be calling and then finding the right person. Okay. Then I get a case manager for the insurance. So anyway, it took almost two years. Finally ended up getting a free one off of a Facebook group, which is exactly what I needed. Unfortunately, the child passed three months after getting their bed, but it was a new bed. And then a week after I got this darn bed, I get a call from the insurance saying you've been approved. It just, we wait, we fight. Shouldn't have to wait two years for a bed. Yes, people uh, are waiting on these lists for years for therapy, for help, for yeah. like a bed. Why is it taking years? We need this I help have two now. I have two insurances too. I have my personal workplace insurance, which sucks. I would go bankrupt if I had to just use that. And then Medicaid's supposed to cover the rest. So it's crappy that two insurances were still fighting for this stuff. Um, and this is basic. I- needs. This isn't something extravagant or it's not a luxury. It's basic needs for our kids. Yep. Lily is now almost a hundred pounds. I can no longer lift her. As of a year ago, I hurt my back because of lifting her. So I'm forced to use the lift, which is fine. It just takes longer. It's a pain in the neck, but she's got a nice lift. It's battery operated and it takes big battery. The big battery costs $250. The big battery no longer works. We have to keep it on the charger and then hopefully it's charged enough to actually do a lift. Again, I've been fighting six months for the insurance to pay for a $250 battery. Actually, I found one somewhere for $80, a generic brand. They would not pay for it because they don't approve the lift. So instead, they went out and bought a $1,000 Hoyer lift. Oh, good heavens. And then those that know about this, this equipment, a Hoyer lift is a hand lift, which is fine. It can work in some instances, but it won't work in a tub. But just the thought process that you're willing to pay $1,000 for a Hoyer lift, yet not 250 for a battery. <laughs> That's a bureaucracy at its finest right there. Yeah. And then we all have all these a million stories. So I ended yeah. up going and buying my $70, I think it was, whatever it was, battery that was generic. And that's what I'm doing. I'm paying out of pocket for, you know, and the Hoyer lifts sit in the garage because I had to keep it because I needed a sling. Her sling's mm-hmm. too small. And the only way to get a sling was it came with the Hoyer lift. <laughs> At least you got something out of it. <laughs> Which is whatever. I, got, I ended up getting what I needed, but it was a weird way of getting it. <laughs> Yeah. So you said it, there are so many issues with having special needs kiddos or having disabilities yourself. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, I will be in yelling matches and and not yelling matches, even a two hour wait list or wait on the phone on hold for two hours with a company and trying to get answers to this medical stuff. So it's, I don't have time for that. We shouldn't have to do that. Yeah, exactly. We could have a whole other podcast of nothing, but this is where the system failed us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's so many avenues. Yes, yeah. totally. I agree. <sighs> so having the issues that you've dealt with with Austin and all these things that you're dealing with Lily, how did that affect your marriage to their dad? Yeah. So there was whole other issues with my marriage, not just with the kids. But I think the big problem was, like I said, you know, being a stay-at-home mom and then going back to work and not having that conversation ahead of time. I ended up doing two jobs, still the stay-at-home mom, making the lunches for the husband, making the dinners, doing all the kids' appointments, and then working full-time. That started really with that. But then having two special needs kids to their appointments, I mean, literally, it was an average of four appointments a week. Yeah. They had between the two. Lily had two to 
three and Austin had two a week. So my mom would do it. The father never did. But I stayed in the marriage for so long because I thought I had to. I thought there's no way I could take care of Lily alone. There's no way. But finally, I ended up about six years ago leaving him. And going back to going through the grieving process, he never went through a grieving process. I think he was always, it made him angry. He never grieved, I don't think. He never accepted it. It made him a very angry person where I at least accepted it and moved on. I've gotten angry recently, but, oh, yeah. but you know, <laughs> I think you kind of always go up and down, but I think that was the biggest thing is not going through that process together and being in it, coming back together and, and accepting it together was probably it. It's so important to make sure you're both on the same page. Yeah. It does isolate you as a family because there's people that just don't understand, but then that just leaves the two of you to deal with everything. It's just the two of you venting and you have to be able to take turns going, okay, I'll take the burden. You'll take the burden. I'll listen to you. You'll listen to me, that kind of thing. It's so important that you are hundred percent both there all the time. That's hard. You bringing that up reminded me how at least I had that when I was married is that he understood I needed to get away once a year. And he understood that the very last year, you know, I actually went away because we couldn't no longer go camping with Austin or doing any of those family trips, sometimes we could, we didn't have the hours, the care provider hours. We didn't have the help for that, or we couldn't afford to pay somebody to come in and watch Lily. And we couldn't take her wood. It's more stressful for me, honestly, but he understood that. So I would go camping for a week with Austin, come back, and then his dad would go camping for a week with him alone. And that was our time away. And I would go have a girls weekend every once in a while, although I felt guilty. (laughs) Of course, we always feel guilty. Yes. But I needed it. And it's really important to have a spouse that understands and that is in that with you because people don't understand. I mean, even though we are in a similar situation, we have different situations. Right. I don't know what it's like to deal with your kids and and vice versa. Yeah. So really understanding that. And so I'm with somebody now, I'm engaged with somebody and I think he understands now, but in the beginning he didn't, he had no clue. He didn't understand why, like about once every nine, 10, 11 months, I just emotionally, I know I have to leave the country if possible. (laughs) Basically I need a vacation. And he didn't really understand why until now that he's been in the situation for a few years with me and he can see it. And then the toll it takes on me, how important a vacation is. Yeah. And I mean, when I say vacation, I mean, honestly, it's a vacation away from Lily and Austin. (laughs) Right. But it's true. We talk a lot on here about the idea of self-care. And I say the idea because how many of us actually do it when I feel like it's almost more important for us to make that a priority than it is even for your, you know, your typical families, your normal families, because we have so much more of a burden on us. It's 24 seven. And of course, parenting is 24 seven, but our normal is completely different than other people's normal. And our normal deals with all those appointments and continuing all the therapies at home and the feeding issues and the the isolation and the no social life. And it is really important to do self-care, but Boy, that's hard to convince yourself that it's okay to get away. And I think that's a really good recommendation for all those newbie parents or, you know, people who haven't done it is do it. I mean, I have to tell you the first time I took a trip with a girlfriend to Mexico, first time I'd ever left the country and it was the best thing in my whole life coming back and just being so refreshed for Lily. It's so important. 
Right. Yeah, definitely to have that and, um, and get a break. So Lily is almost 18 now. Tell me what a typical day looks like for her. Well, she's not going to school now. Pretty much every day somebody comes in and they'll get her out of bed. So I have a care provider who does it. Uh, lately, I've been really good at having that, but I'll just pretend like I don't have a care provider. I'm doing it. <laughs> you know, I mean, she's a newborn in that stage. So we have to do all care for her. We have to change her diaper, clean her up, give her a bath, brush her teeth, comb her hair. <laughs> she wears a CPAP at night. We remove all that. Um, we've got another bed in the living room and she hangs out in the living room on her bed. I do put her in a wheelchair at least a couple hours a day, but it's just easier and more comfortable to be in her bed. I mean, because she has to be changed every couple hours. She's now had a few bed sores, so we have Mm. to turn her every couple hours. We got to keep an eye on that. And she can't see very well. She is considered visually blind. So she just listens to music and TV. It's really awesome because she's in a special education class at school. I think there's like nine kids in there varying degrees of abilities, but they do a Zoom or they had been doing a Zoom once a week. And it was so neat because if you don't know her, you couldn't tell, but if you know her, you can read her facial expressions. And I can tell when she recognizes somebody or when she's happy, and it may not necessarily be a smile, but her eyes will like lift up and brighten. Uh So on Zoom, there's a certain boy, she gets excited when she hears (laughs) his voice. She likes boys. Lily. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and there's also a male paraeducator when she hears his voice. <laughs> now, paraeducator is a teacher assistant for, for the special education right. classes in school. And yeah, so she likes older boys, I guess. <laughs> so funny. Then she's got yeah. good taste then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Assuming the pandemic ends and everyone's able to go back to life as normal, how yeah. long will she be able to stay in the school system? I think it's 21, but at least a couple more years. So she'll still be there. Yeah. That's good. Yes. To have that stability. Yeah. And the socialization. I mean, if it's just me here and we don't really go anywhere, it's hard to put in a chair. It's harder to take anywhere. It's stressful. It's hard to push her wheelchair. I mean, it's just hard. Right. I mean, she's 100 pounds. Her wheelchair's 80. You know, if she's in a cranky mood, you got to put music on her and just, and then getting her, finding parking spots suck people who have wheelchair vans. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's a, it's an all day it's draining task. I mean, we'll take her obviously to like zoo lights we like to do, which is the Christmas time, the lights at the zoo and that kind of thing. We do those outings, but to go to the store, no, yeah, <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> it's not, no, uh-uh. but I do request the care providers for them to take her for walks. She loves going for walks. So school is so important because it's socialization and it's so important for what they do. And like when we were going, me and you were going to school, we never really saw the special education need kids. Now the normal classroom kids come in. Even when she was younger, the special education kids would go into the regular PE class and the music class. So they integrate them. Not so much that it really matters for Lily, but it matters for the normal, regular, yes. <laughs> whatever you want to call them, kids. Yes. I always um, refer to them as neurotypical. Yeah, there you go. Neurotypical kids. Yeah. yeah. They get used to it. So that's what I loved seeing was the intermingling of the regular students and the special education. Yeah, it's so important for the normal kids to see kids with different disabilities and different needs. So they know that, hey, these are just other students at the school. It's not a big deal. It gets to be quote unquote normal to see kids like this. And so then it hopefully it encourages them as they go out other places too, to where if they see a child who is yelling or hand flapping or in a wheelchair or 
with the crutches or something that that's just, oh, that's just another kid. We're used to seeing that. That's exactly what's exciting about seeing that. So 18 is a fun age with kids with disabilities and special needs because they're adults. So are you preparing for that whole transition already with Lily? Yeah. So I actually started once she turned 17. I kind of just knew about that and about the changes that will happen. Not all of them, but knew that I had to start preparing. So I started asking questions and looking around and I have a care provider who has gone through the same process with her child. So I really leaned on her for a lot of guidance. I knew just from rumors, groups, whatever, years ago, hearing about how you have to get guardianship and how it's $3,000. So I was prepared for that. And I knew that I just have to do it. And of course, every time I tell any other adult out there, like my parents, my friends, you know, when they hear that you have to get guardianship, pay $3,000 for your own child. Yeah, it is what it is. I mean, I've accepted it. It sucks, but why complain about it anymore? I mean, it's, I got to do it. I have to. So that's where I'm at now. I've had a lawyer that I've had through my divorce. So he can do guardianship. So I will pay him to do it. It's just the paperwork we have to start. In fact, so here we are. Um, she turns 18 in September. I'm getting a little nervous because I haven't heard anything from my lawyers. Just the other day, I sent him an email. Where are we at? (laughs) He hasn't forgotten. So I don't know what that process is. I just got the lawyer and he'll do it. I'll sign the paperwork and we'll get the guardianship. I'm pretty confident it should go good. Her dad has not seen her for four years. So, I mean, it's for the, you know, custody and all that kind of stuff. There shouldn't be any fight in that regard, but it's just going through the paperwork. It's nice to be able to, like you had somebody who's, who's walked that road ahead of you, or you've got connections that you can draw on for recommendations. So that's nice. So definitely, I strongly recommend to anybody who's listening, if you don't have a support community in the special needs world, you need to find one and get yourself plugged in because having people who have dealt with these things before, who have already had to deal with it. People who know the system and what to expect, it just makes it so much easier on you to be able to deal with all of that and to walk that road. Definitely. And I recommend the Facebook groups that are local that have special needs. And, you know, and, and there's many people I know on there, I see posting questions and the responses are great. It's local. They have answers. Yeah. If you're not in one of those groups, get in one. Facebook, definitely. (laughs) Yes. And that's perfect. What you're saying about making sure you find one that's local, because this is great. Me being able to talk to you, like I could call you and talk to you about being a special needs mom part, but I couldn't call you and ask you about services or anything because I'm in Texas. I have no idea. The whole system is completely different of what they're expecting and what they're requiring and what you have to go through. So definitely make sure you find someplace local to get plugged in. The other big thing is, and we kind of talked about it, was the doctors, mm-hmm. see pediatrician doctors, and we have probably 12 doctors, neurologists, GI, geneticist, a therapist, pediatrician, all these specialists, all these resources that I've relied on, and I now have to get adult ones. So that's where I'm currently, you know, and I have some, I've gotten some from talking to people, like my care provider has a really good neurologist. So we'll go be seeing that neurologist. I already have an appointment with that doctor after September. So that's probably the hardest thing at 18. And then SSI. I was told I cannot apply for SSI until she's 18 years old. I will probably fill the paperwork two days before, throw it in the middle of the day before (laughs) and get it in there. And it will help. I mean, like I had to pay for a $10,000 wheelchair van recently out of my pocket I pay $100 insurance just for that van a month. I go on and on about, you know, the -the over-the-counter medications I have to pay 
So it definitely will be helpful to be able to have Lily pay that. I mean, she doesn't need food, but she has needs. Now she can start paying for those herself. And I've been told it's not much. It's maybe five, six, seven hundred dollars a month, but it'll at least pay for gas in the car. And the van needs a lift. It's a thousand dollars. I can't afford it. The lift is a very heavy manual. So, you know, that's actually on the top of my list is to be able to fix that van for her. So the SSI will be very helpful. DDA, which is what we currently get, does change at 18. They've already addressed that. She did get more hours this year. So what they do is they get through Washington State, I get a certain amount of hours per month, and then I get a certain amount of hours for respite a year. And so that did increase quite a bit, which is why I'm able to work and then even have some weekend time covered. In other states, parents can become a care provider, their state agency, and get paid for it. Washington State, I have to wait until she's 18. So that is another thing I've started doing. I had to turn in a background check (laughs) to get qualified to become my daughter's care provider. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) And then now I have to sit in a seven-hour parent class to become a care provider for Lily. But that's nice because I'm still going to keep my care providers, but any of the extra hours or whatever, you know, I'm working. I mean, she's 18, so I can get paid to be her care provider if I choose. And many parents, stay-at-home parents or whoever they may choose to do that. If I right. you know, wanted to quit working and care for her, it probably wouldn't be enough, but I could do that. So tell me, what are your favorite moments? The moments that you just kind of put aside and treasure in your heart so that way you can pull them out later when the days are really difficult. What are the things that you treasure the most? Her smiles. Lily's smile is very it's contagious and it's so neat to see her smile and then somebody else smile or start laughing because she is like, especially when Austin was younger, I'd be yelling at Austin and whatever, for whatever he's doing wrong. And she'd just start cracking up laughing. <laughs> and so We'd both stop and we'd look at her and, and just start like smiling. That is my happy moments is that. So let me ask you one more thing before we close. And you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What advice or encouragement would you give to those families who were just starting out on this journey? For the parents who were still at the beginning, they just got the diagnosis or, you know, are still in those early stages, what would you say to them? Start trying to get the services now. Talk with people on how to get the services. I've come across that a few times where somebody, you know, like maybe has a a kiddo in a wheelchair and is pretty much independent, but maybe needs a little bit of help in the bath. And I've told them, get services now, get those care providers hours now in case you do need more, it's there and you have it. And then taking the breaks, getting the respite. We have a facility. I mean, it's a good hour away, hour and a half away, but it's a respite facility. And I can drop Lily off there for a week at a time to get that respite. So find those facilities near you. This one takes my care provider hours, but they also do sliding scale. If you can afford it, you know, five bucks a day. They charge me eight hours a day compared to 24 hours of care provider. So they're reasonable places and find somewhere like that and, and take that break because we need it. Because like you said, it's so important. Lily would not be living here if I did not take my breaks regularly. I couldn't yeah. handle it. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's reality it. for a lot of us. It is. I mean, we need to take care of ourselves in order to take care of our kids. And we have to do that as a normal mom. But for special needs kids too, we need to do it even more. Yeah, yeah So that is. That's so important. Thanks for that reminder. Yeah. Get those services especially if there's waiting lists on everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Amy. It was an honor to talk with you and to hear some more about Lily and meeting Austin. And I just appreciate you 
taking time out of your day to sit and share with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me and talking about it. I'd like to thank everyone for listening today. You can find all the links and show notes for today's episode at amazinglyordinarylife.com slash episode four. If you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you left a review and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. As always, I'd love to hear your story. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact me at anamazinglyordinarylife.com. And don't miss next week's episode where we'll be talking with Amanda Smith, a 38-year-old woman with Asperger's who wasn't diagnosed until she was 29. Hope you join me then.